for all this stuff. Even when I sat early this morning and I tried to put together all my stuff that I've been saving for today and say, how do I want to talk about it? I think I want to tell you to begin with that when I got up and I thought, I don't know how to talk today because I'm, I'm somewhat radically altered today. I, I, uh, I flew to Southern California yesterday morning. I flew to Orange County yesterday morning and I flew back last night. So that's already... Uh, uh, so I, I left my house at 6 o'clock in the morning and I drove to Oakland and I took a plane and I went down and I spent the day with uh, the other grandmother of my of two of my children and um, it was really a lovely day I, I thought of you yesterday during the day Mo because uh, Maureen is a, is a hospice nurse and uh, uh, the hospice hasn't started to come but once a week uh, at this point because uh, Noemi amazingly uh, was diagnosed six months ago with, with pan pancreatic cancer. She's 84 years old. She really didn't want any kind of a therapy. She needed only to be reassured that there would be the appropriate pain medicines when she needed them. And six months have gone by and she hasn't needed them. But she is dying now, and she is getting smaller and smaller and frailer and frailer. And um, I, we, we spent the day together, and it was an important day, but there, it, was, it was an easy day. And I thought about, at the end of the day, I felt somewhat um, clearer in my mind. There was a lot of flying around, and a lot of planes, and a lot of organization. <coughs> But I came up with a really a, a, a renewed sense of clarity about there are things that matter and things that don't matter. And most things don't matter, but some things do. And uh, recognizing that you love people and that everything passes and not messing up the time that you have with them when you have it is about it. That matters, I think. It matters to know that. Everything about the day was amazing. I sat down in the Oakland airport to wait for my plane, and uh, the woman I sat next to, you look over, and right away you think, oh, woman my age. So you start a conversation. And I'm convinced that two women uh, can sit down, even it doesn't matter the age, but the fact that we're both old makes a difference. And uh, so in the five minutes or 10 that we shared together before I boarded this plane and she waited for the plane for Salt Lake, I found out that she uh, uh, she had uh, she has 22 grandchildren from seven children, and uh, I think four or six great grandchildren. So I know that she's 70, and she knows that I'm 78, and um, I said, uh, you know, all the names of all the. 22 grandchildren and however many great-grandchildren looked at me like she was surprised. She said, of course. And I know all their birthdays also. And, uh, and uh, I think one of the things I wanted to tell you, it was, it's, I don't know, I, I think any of you have had this experience, but it's so warming to me that you don't need family to keep yourself company. She said two things. First of all, she said, um, more than that, 
uh, somehow I said, you have, oh, she has seven children. I said, how old are you? She said, I'm 70. How old are you? I said, I'm 78. She said, wow, I have more wrinkles than you. How did you do that? And I thought, you know, who says that to anybody except old friends? You know, it was dear. It was just really dear. Because she said it without any kind of, a, it's just like a fact, you know. Um, so I said, are you a Mormon? Because who lives in Salt Lake and has seven children except Mormons? So she said, yeah, I am. I said, your children? She said, no, none of them. Uh, but not in a bad way. I said, they didn't do a missionary, nobody did a missionary year. She said, no, just me. But, you know, but there was no problem with any of that stuff. I kept thinking about, what a lesson. It's not a problem. No, just me, that's all. Uh, and she said, you know, I, I said, uh, she had missed her plane. She said, I called my husband. I said, you have the same one all this time? She said, yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> And told him I'd miss the plane, so I'm going to be three hours late. He said, oh, good. I said, I have a little more time to, you know, get ready to come and meet you. I said, I'm sorry you have to sit three hours in the airplane. She said, no. She said, it's always been my dream to go live in an airport. She said, I love it. I, said, I told my husband, when I get older, I'm just going to go. She said, I told him this before the days with all the security, and you could just go in and out of airports, that I was going to go into airports and just sit there all day and watch people coming and going. Because it's so exciting in airports. You see so much emotional stuff. People greeting, people meeting, people leaving each other and loving each other. So I thought to myself, that's just exactly like Siddhartha, you know, that you get to be a ferry ferryman and you take people back and forth across uh, a river and you just look at people coming. When I lived in France, I used to think about uh, I remember years ago deciding that my ideal life would to be an ecclusière. Uh, an ecluse is a, is a um, what do you call it? What do you call it when you ride into something and you let the water in? And the, a lock. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a lock. And if you travel up and down the canals, uh, you need to ride into locks depending on which canal, but sometimes every kilometer or so. You drive into a lock and you tie up and then you get off the boat and you in the old days, used to turn a great wheel and close one door and turn something else and it would fill with water and then you open the other door and you sail out. And in the days when uh, most of the travel and transport and merchandise movement in France happened on the waterways, uh, it was very important to have them functioning. And at each lock, even those that were a kilometer or two apart, you'd have a person living in a house Often two little old people living in a house, is my experience as we traveled around, who were an éclusière, an éclusier, éclusière, and you'd come in and you'd spend five or ten minutes with this person or people while you filled up your water in your, around your boat. And frequently they'd have bread for sale that they'd made or pies or... Uh, if you were in Normandy, you could get cider, and uh, so it was a little side business from the from doing the locks. And I used to think to myself, I like that. I'd like to. It's like Siddhartha, you know, where you just see people coming and going, but you don't go anywhere. You just stay there, and they all pass by you, and you see life going by. And there's something about the appreciation that life goes by for everybody. And everybody's got a story, you know. And here in 10 minutes, I know that, how, when, that she married this man when she was 20 years old, and 
she had all these children and then all these grandchildren. And uh, uh, she said, well, I have some, some of my grandchildren. They didn't all have those. Some of them married somebody who already had some. So I got a few extra grandchildren that way. And, <laughs> but it's just a story of a life. She, it was not even she, it, it wasn't exaggerated in any way. This is just, you could put it, if you put a, a, a heading on that, this would be this particular woman whose name I never asked, nor did she ask mine. We know all the things about grandchildren's ages, this, that, and the other, religion, but uh, not her age. But she had a life, and he said, everybody had a life. Uh, the man who flew next to me coming home in the afternoon, he had a life, and he came from somewhere to the Bay Area, and he lived there during the 60s, and then he lived in, Pacific, in Pacifica, and then he uh, married, and then he had a child, and this is his daughter that he's traveling with, and now he lives in Park City, and they live right near the ski slope, and I know that ski slope could have a lot of talk about that. And then we got, and I don't know his name either, but everybody had a life. And... Uh, and yesterday, as we, as we sat and talked all day, it wasn't that much different from the conversation in the airport going or in the plane coming back. It's everybody had a life, and you can talk about it. And the fact that Noemi's life is coming to the end, you know, maybe in a week, maybe two, maybe a few more. Um, we sat in the, uh, in, uh, the living room. At the other end of the room, there's a, ho there's a hospital bed set up. And she said, oh, at some point, she said, hospice brought the bread. She said, I don't need it yet, but it's there for when I need it. It's okay. It's just like, uh, I, I thought about this morning that the, as I was thinking about it again and again, that the feeling very much in the, in the whole day as we talk about this or that or the other was at certain times not much different from the feeling when you visit somebody who's about to have a baby. They say, oh, that's the nursery. I've just painted the walls and got this and that. People are waiting for a particular event to happen, but not with any distress about it. It's just, there's this event that's going to happen. And um, you begin to think about that's what's important, exchanging news with people about what are the events that are happening and keeping them company as the events happen. So, yeah. Joe told me this morning, when we drove over here, she said, I remember that you told us about Noemi years ago. I'll, I'll, this is it doesn't matter what order I tell you. Uh, I told her a particular story twice yesterday because I told it to her. And then later on in the day when um, my daughter-in-law was there all day and her sister from uh, El Salvador who had flown up to be with her for the rest of the time and her husband, and uh, later in the day, her other daughter, who lives nearby, came with her husband. So everybody said, so I told the same story twice. And the story goes like this, and it's pertinent to what is really central to, my, to how I'd like to be and what I'd like to teach, and having my mind being um, a friendly neighborhood, like my, night, my mind to be a friendly neighborhood. When my son Peter met the woman that he married, 30-some years ago, and it was, became clear that they were going to be serious and they were going to marry, we, went, we were invited to come and meet the parents. So I remember it was a, 
exciting day. And we came there. So I remembered when I walked in again, I've been there since, but I remembered that I came in the kitchen and the window is kind of in the corner of the kitchen and it looks out on the walkway coming up. And I said, Noemi, you know, when I first met you, we were standing at that window, and she can't stand up anymore. I said, we were standing over there in that window and looking out, and you were cooking, and you said to me, here comes my daughter Natalia coming up the walk. Here comes Natalia. She's so wonderful. You're going to love her. She's terrific. She's just so bright and so sensitive and so loving and so kind. You're going to love Natalia. She's great. And she arrives. And then... Uh, Jorge arrived a little later, and you said, oh, look, here comes my son, Jorge. He's fantastic. He's a poet. He's so sensitive. He's so kind. He has such a good heart. You're going to love Jorge. He's really wonderful. And then your uh, sister-in-law was arriving, and you said, oh, here comes my sister-in-law, Mirna. You know, Mirna is, I realize I'm on a tape. The whole world is listening to Mirna. my sister, Mirna has died now, so it's okay. Here comes my sister-in-law, Mirna. Mirna could be a little difficult sometimes, but, you know, Mirna had a really hard life. A lot of terrible things happened to her. She didn't have any good luck at all. You know, sometimes when she's really, she might be a little bit more difficult, but I always realized that Mirna had a difficult life. And I realized in that moment that her mind had a mechanism for reframing everybody into a good story. Here comes Jorge, he's terrific. Here comes Natalia, she's terrific. Here comes Mirna. Mirna had a really difficult life, so that's why Mirna is like Mirna. But she was a person who kept people in a positive way. Well, Joe reminded me this morning, because she, she hadn't actually known that I'd gone down yesterday. She said, I remember when you told me about uh, that day that you were with uh, Noemi in some terrible traffic, and in, the, in Orange County or in Los Angeles or wherever we were. And uh, he, it, the traffic was really bad and you thought that she was about to make some statement about the bad traffic. And she said, wow, look at this. Everybody's going everywhere. Look at that. You know, that, that she had a kind of a magic mechanism for reframing situations well. I asked her about that yesterday, so I told her that story, and she loved hearing it. Then when Natalia arrived, I retold the story in terms of, that's going to be the story that people are going to tell about, you know, Amy. Because I didn't say, you know, we're not going to see each other again when I left, because we both know that. But I said, you know, Noemi, years from now when we're all gone, and all the people, there are going to be people walking around on this planet with your genes and my genes in them, both of them, that, that, that somewhere there are going to be people with both of our genes. Because um, there already are people with both of our genes walking around in the planet. And they'll mix up with other people, and they'll be walking around with our genes. So our genes will be walking around in other people, and there'll be photos around of us. And the only thing that people will know about us is the photos and the stories that, will rem- that people will tell about us. And that's a story that people are going to tell about you. They're going to tell that Noemi framed everything in a way that was good. I said, how come you learned to do that? Because she actually had a very difficult, she had a really difficult beginning. She said, I don't know. I just always did it that way. Uh, I just always did it that way. So I don't know. We spent a lot of time yesterday, all of us, talking about why do we, any of us, 
do the way we do. That uh, somehow it seems like um, there are junctures. It, uh, uh, I, I was thinking about this in terms of wise effort. Then the, then the Buddha teaching that wise effort is really the effort in any moment because we have a zillion moments every day that we have the possibility of uh, uh, the mind starting in a negative grumble or not. <laughs> look at this terrible traffic. Oh, wow, look, everybody's going everywhere. You know, it's just you have a, you have a choice. You have a choice. How many people here think they have no Amy's mind or would like it? No, I would like it. <laughs> I would like it. You know, I would really like it. I don't have it. I'm practicing having it. I'm practicing having it. I was practicing having it. Well, this would probably. I did write it into an article that I wrote this week. So uh, it is a story about my experience a week ago. Uh, yesterday was my second attempt to go to Orange County. I went last. I almost went last Tuesday. I had a ticket. I had a boarding pass. I went to the airport uh, very early in the morning, uh, and uh, and the flight was canceled. It had been canceled. I went to San Francisco. You remember last Tuesday was the day we had that big thunderstorm in the morning. And there were apparently thunderstorms rolling through all morning. So I come to the airport, and uh, I walk in. I've got my boarding. I have no luggage. I'm just going for the day. I come boarding pass. I come up to the security, and I look on the sign, flight to Orange County is canceled. So I ask somebody, first of all, I'm a a little bit dismayed. I've just come on the airporter, and I get up, go to the airport, go to I said, can I ask you about this? I've got a boarding passport to cancel. I said, no, no, they, you can't have, you have to ask the agent over there. You have to go get on the line. I said, but that line's an hour long because really it's a big line. I said, no, I can't take your answer. You have to go to the agent. So I have to say, I didn't have the best attitude in that <laughs> moment. I, you know, that I really, <laughs> I really didn't have the best attitude. First of all, I, 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 Anyway, uh, it's a sad thing to be going, so the mind's a little bit fragile, and because uh, I'm, I am aware that I'm not going to see her again. So, but at this point, it goes from fragile to mad. So I'm mad, and so I, I go and I get, I try to uh, take a cut on the line, try to come along and say, "Excuse me," they said. They say you have to go on the end of the line, and I'm aware that there's soon another flight. And if I get on the other line, I can miss that flight also while I'm standing on the line. So I stand on the line, and I'm honestly saying to myself, may I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? And somebody on the line says, you know, if you want, you can phone uh, Southwest Air while standing on the line, and you probably get a person sooner than you, than you get up to the boarding gate. So starts the, may I meet this moment fully? I take out my phone. I look up the phone number of Southwest Air. I can't read it because I don't have my glasses. May I meet this moment fully? I'm in my purse looking for the glasses. Find the glasses, find the phone number. Okay, ring, ring. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? 
recorded announcement. Thank you for calling Southwest Airlines. Push this if you want listen to this message. If you want to buy a ticket, if you want this a ticket, if you want to ask a question of a ticket, push this, this, this. Okay, push. Then again, okay, your phone call is very important to us. <laughs> if it were very important, you'd think they'd like answer it sooner. <laughs> I'm standing there and I'm feeling bewildered and bedraggled and tired and upset about no Amy. And I am meeting this moment. I'm trying to remember to think that. And I seriously, I'm on hold the entire time that my line is approaching. And somebody got on just as I was stepping up to the agent. So I click off my phone in time to find. And the agent said, well, you know, they, they canceled. There's not enough flights. from. They have many more flights in Oakland. And uh, he said, uh, you know, you should have gotten a notice. I said, why don't they call or something? So you should have gotten a notice. Did you check your email this morning? Dun, 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 dun. I didn't because I had printed out my boarding pass the night before. And this hadn't <laughs> happened to me before. And I hadn't thought about checking my email. So then I'm thinking to myself, what an idiot could have checked the email. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? And I got back on the bus and I came home. And I had spent six hours going and coming and going and coming. But really, I, you know, at the end, I thought it was a morning of practice, you know. And I, I didn't have like an open and wonderful <laughs> mind all the time. But I, I had momentary periods of pulling myself together, you know. And at, that, at the end, I thought, you know what? I went, I came, I'm okay. I didn't fly in a thunderstorm. She'll be there next week, probably. So I went yesterday. And we looked at photos. And I, you, know, you might think that looking at photos 30 years ago, when it's true, everybody looked at the photos and all of them said, oh, look how beautiful you were. Oh, everybody was 30 years younger and beautiful and you see the the uh, time marches on aspect of it because here we're looking at them and we're looking at the wedding picture of roberto and noemi who's up there and the wedding picture of of noemi's uh, paternal grandmother up there there was a painting not even a photo at that time and you see that through all these lives moved all these genes and here we are at this point, spending a day talking about, among other things, how to cook a tongue. You know, that, what do you talk about with people on the left side? <laughs> Not everybody likes tongue. <laughs> uh, I grew up eating tongue. It's a, it's a peasant food tongue. Do you like tongue, though, Amy? My, they, kids, they, we, my kids like it too. Your kids like yeah. it too. <laughs> my daughter Sloan was saying that uh, uh, it, she liked it growing up with it. She said, but it was worthless in terms of trading power once he got to school. That <laughs> nobody wanted a tongue sandwich. It grosses out most people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my son told me when I came home, the, the, who's related to Noemi by his wife, said, you know, 
at the same time that Noemi was making tongue, you were ma you were baking your own eight 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 hundred grain bread. <laughs> in, it must have been in the late sixties where we were all making our own bread. They said that was he said it was very tasty, but yeah, in order for it not to crumble, you had to cut extremely wide <laughs> slices of it. And you used to make uh, you used to make tuna salad sandwiches on that. Though. He said they were about four inches <laughs> wide and greasy. He said they had about the same trading power as a tongue. And I'm thinking that what we do is we laugh about our lives and we look at how young and beautiful we are, were and how we are now. And honestly, the, I looked this morning. I looked up. Um, I thought it was Shakespeare, but it, it's, it, it turns out to be Tennyson in a poem called Ulysses with the, the line, life piled on life. You know, that it just keeps on happening. It just keeps on happening. So amazingly, just piled on the top of this, on the top of that. The end of it, I hadn't read it before, and you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know enough to, to talk a lot about it. But they're talking about he's dying now, Ulysses. Telemachus, my son, for, who's going to take over as king here, he'll do a good job, he says, by slow prudence, to, his, his labor by slow prudence to make mild a rugged people and through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. I thought that was such a lovely line about what good leadership could do by through soft degrees subdue them to the useful and the good. And at the very end he says much is taken but much abides and though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven that which we are we are one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. So I thought about that. What do you think the not to yield means? Because we do die. I think, not yield to despair, not yield to bitterness, not yield to anything, but to, the, to, to pass out of this life, like from one day to the next. Everything passes. You know, one of the things that was interesting yesterday in terms of just my sense of the world is that um, I enter into a house where the, uh, the house is organized around the fact that these are Noemi's last weeks and here's a hospital bed and uh, here's a ramp because now she's not using that bed and her bedroom is upstairs and she's in a wheelchair. But over last weekend, Roberto built a ramp that goes all the way from the middle of their living room to their second floor so he can wheel her upstairs. Because as long as she can get in her bed, or be put in her bed, she'd like to sleep in her bed. So he built this ramp. 
with my grandson last weekend. And I thought that was, I, 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 I just thought that was really wonderful. I'm very glad for him. Um, when I saw him after the weekend, he'd come down last weekend to help his grandfather build that ramp and to be with his grandmother. And he, he was dismayed by the experience. And he's, um, he's just finished firefighter training and... Uh, uh, he's uh, he's an EMT, and I said, you know, you're going to see a lot of people in this particular way that Noemi is now. He said, I know. He said, and I'm all right with all of those people, but they're not my grandmother, <laughs> you know, and, which I thought was, you know. That's the, that's the interesting thing about people, you know, that when we hear news about somebody and then it's about somebody we know, it's a very different thing. It just is. It's not all the same. May all beings be peaceful and happy, I think, comes from, I think for myself, that that has to come through an awareness of how dear the people who I know and care about are dear to me. That somehow it's at, at a remove. I can't know how anybody else feels, but I can assume that they feel like me because they're, this is how human beings feel. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry about how the world is these days. I, I think about that, um, I, and the least of it is, I get the newspaper every day, and um, I, it's, it's, without looking at the headlines, more and more of the on-top-of-the-fold pictures on the New York Times in the morning are people grieving, anguished, you know, really. You look at people, you don't know which people they are and where they are, and you, but you can look at a face, even from, here's a newsstand and here I am, and you can see that that's a face of grief and anguish and somebody has been bereaved. I read yesterday, one of my practices when I fly, one of my practices uh, is uh, I take the New York Times out of my mailbox in the morning, and I go to the airport and I buy the Wall Street Journal. And I, I, I don't do that regularly. I do it when I fly because I have enough time to read them both. And they're both well-written. They have good writers in both of them. And they both tell, take what happened, because who knows what happened? Everything happened yesterday. But what they choose to report and how they choose to report it and how they choose to say it and the words that they choose to say it, it's such a practice for me to see that who knows what actually really happens. We have so many stories. I have so many stories in between what's happening and how I report my experience of what's happening, what I see about it. or You know, that... What's really true? What was I thinking about with myself that I had uh, that I've been thinking a lot about the way that I add to experience uh, uh, I add to it I think we all do. We add to experience um, a particular mindset that we have. Well, look, Noemi did that. Here's, here's, here's what's happening, and she adds to it, these people are probably going to someplace fabulous or wonderful. That's so great. You know, the, there's a way of doing that. 
I think we put, uh, if, if uh, the article that I was writing was about hindrance energies, and uh, I was writing at, about hindrance energies, which typically in, in formal Buddhist uh, philosophy are uh, desire, which often gets called lust, which sounds worse, but it means uh, uh, feelings, uh, f feeling more frequently soothing yourself or needing something or thinking you need it and feeling I'll feel soothed if I have it. That soothing through getting something is a, is a way that the mind, the default position of the mind when it's challenged After I finish this long day of work, I'm going to go out for a wonderful dinner. Okay, now I can work. I can think about that. I'm not even eating the dinner yet, but I'm thinking about it. Now I can do the work. Or uh, the default position of getting mad at what's going on. I hate my boss. This is a bad assignment. All of these co-workers are not doing right. Whatever. Uh, it's too hard of a job. I can't do it. Uh, it's a whatever. I give up. Uh, if it's this hard today, it's probably going to be much worse tomorrow, and who knows what the future will bring, which is the fretting and nervous response. And the fifth of those classic responses is uh, doubt, usually self-doubt. Oh, I should never have gotten this job. It was really a stupid move for me to get this job. Like the, the moment in the airport where I think to myself, why didn't I check my email this morning? I could have saved this whole <coughs> trip on the bus or whatever. And writing about that those, that those uh, default positions are always in there. We don't fall into them necessarily or act on them, but they're the gloss that sometimes, the, not in the sense of shiny, make you see better, but the, in the sense of an overlay that stands between me and experiences. That, uh, if, for instance, you, one has a mind that's uh, open to fretting or falls into fretting and worrying, Anybody here has this? <laughs> a lot of people have this. So you phone somebody who should be home at this time, and they're not there. And you think, well, calamity has befallen them. You know, All you know is you don't even know that they're not there. As far as you know, they could be watching their favorite TV program and recording your message that they don't actually feel like answering the, t the telephone. Now, all you know is I phoned and they didn't answer. It's all you know. But you think, look what late it is, and there's a big storm outside, and maybe this and maybe that, and calamity has truly befallen. And to be able to see that, that what's really true is that they're not home. That's it. Oh, no, that's not even true. Could be not home. What's really true is you phoned and the phone didn't answer. You don't even know if you dialed the right number. Well, nowadays you do because yeah, you get the message machine. But in the days that you didn't, all you knew is that you phoned a number that no one answered. But you could have a whole movie in your mind. And even as the movie is unfolding, all those people have just put up their hands, you recognize that as the movie unfolds, and even as you tell yourself, this is just a ridiculous story that I'm telling myself, the mind gets filled with adrenaline, doesn't it? And you get all nervous and tense and unhappy and feel terribly relieved. People keep quoting Mark Twain as saying, most of the terrible things that happened in my life never actually happened. But I don't actually, I, don't, I never saw actually that quote. That could be one of those urban legends that he said that. 
And I thought to myself, maybe it's just because I have a, a finicky editing kind of a mind, but if the ter most terrible things of his life didn't happen, they did happen. They happened in his mind. And that was terrible. It wasn't as terrible, maybe, as if they had actually happened. But it overlooks the fact that the people who have those kind of irritated minds, it's a really, it's a really, it's a bear. I mean, I think usually about a fifth of people, a third of people. How many people worry more than they think is? Some people say, there's no point to worry. There is no point to worry. There is no, absolutely, from, take it from a worrier. There's no point to worry. There's no constructive good. Concern is, is reasonable. You know, if I have an exam, if I'm going to take the bar exam, then I study. If, you know, if a hurricane is coming, I batten down the hatches. I mean, there are reasons for concern. But after you do, my, my friend Alta, who died a long time ago, had lots of things that were of concerns in her, in her life. And I'd say to her, Alta, she was kind of like Noemi, had that kind of a mind. I'd say, you don't seem to worry. And she said, well, no, worry is really extra. She said, you know, you do what you do. You do the best you can, and what's the point of worrying? And it's, you know, it's eminently sensible. But, you know, it's also not true for most people that that works. Um, <laughs> so anyway, where we were is uh, when somehow I got diverted myself into the hindrances, but it's important. Also legitimizes this talk as a Buddhist talk. <laughs> I'm going to further, I'm not just the, you know, the personal life of Sylvia Borstein, but everybody's life is their dharma, honestly. There is nothing, no thing in life. You know, for a while, people were sending in stories. I got a dozen, 15 maybe stories. I need more. If you want to write me a story about some moment of your life that was instructive to you, which it was surely already happened today, if not yesterday, some story that, and you send it to me at sylviaborstein at gmail.com. If I get enough of them, I'll make a book out of them. But uh, they're coming in very slowly. So uh, they don't have to be. They're just someone helps you pump gas in the gas station and you feel reassured about the state of the world from that because you do. Somebody says, I see you're having trouble, madam. Can I help you with anything? And you feel buoyed up for the whole day. You can write an entire treatise on the value of kindness. Really, on the value of kindness. Yesterday I got on the airplane to come home and we were all ready to go and the pilot came on said, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to tell you something uh, to prepare you so you won't be concerned about the takeoff. Ah, so what's going to be concerned about the takeoff? He said, well, we take off out of Orange County out of, uh, uh, because we are being very careful about the noise abatement for the people who live here. What we do is we rev up to our fastest speed at the end of the runway. We go to the end of the runway, we rev up to our fastest speed, then we take off, and I'm already picturing it's going to take off like a rocket, you know, <laughs> which it pretty much did, you know. Sometimes it take off slowly, this didn't it take off like a rocket. He said, and, we, and then we take off, and then we cut the motor so that the, it's silent for a while. He says, don't worry about it. So I imagine people do, you know. <laughs> but then I thought, uh, how lovely that they did that. So he says, so this is, you shouldn't be afraid. 
And I thought to myself, that particular gesture, I'm sure it's not this particular pilot, it must be in the Southwest Air or in the book of people who fly in and out of there or out of uh, the other place that they do that is Palm Springs where they take off like rockets. But I think that general thing about being able to say to somebody, don't be afraid, which comes down to at the beginning of life when people are having babies and say, don't be afraid, this is going just as it's supposed to go and it's soon going to finish. And they don't be afraid. And then the, the part of the discomfort, which is a big part for sure of childbirth, is worrying about, oh, it's bad, how long will it go, and it'll get worse, and I can't do this. Of course you can do it. Everybody's been doing it forever, you know, but at the moment. So somebody tells you, someone puts their hand on you and says, this is okay, it'll be all right. In the, um, I actually don't know if this is a scripture line. It wouldn't be a scripture line because there's nothing in scripture. I don't think, I think it's all folklore about... Uh, Moses being uh, no, Moses had a mother in the in the in Exodus, but I don't think you know this part of his childhood except in the stories about it. But anyway, if you if you remember seeing um, Moses, Prince of Egypt, you remember that, and the beginning where his mother puts him in a basket and sends him out on the puts him out on the river because there's an edict to kill all. Uh, firstborn Jewish, born, all Jewish babies. And in the movie, it's just a movie, she puts him out and says, uh, uh, don't be afraid, and pushes him out on the river of life. And uh, even, I tell, tell you this, and it's, it, was a, it was a cartoon movie, and I start to cry when I, because, you know, really, suppose somebody sent us out in life, and said, so don't be afraid, and people do. All we do, we send people off to college, and we say, don't be afraid. Actually, my mother didn't say, don't be afraid. She said, you're gonna meet a lot of people. This is a, a really good piece. We tell, um, this is in the line of what do people say that's helpful. My mother said, you're gonna meet a lot of people. She said, anybody you meet, ask them what's interesting to you, what are you really interested in, and they'll tell you, and be really interested in it, she said whatever it is. And she said, don't fake it. Really be interested in it. And it's such a good piece of thing in life. I, you know, I, when I sat down with that woman yesterday and we talked in 10 minutes, the whole thing is because I'm interested in what's her life. And if she tells me her life, it helps me live mine. If she tells me, no, none of my children did my religion in that way, it's okay. And and for other people to pass around the, the news, you can do it. Don't be afraid. It's all fine. It's absolutely okay. And if we read it in Dharma, we say, oh, here's this big Dharma. It's okay. It's all right. Swami Korpala was known for saying, everything is absolutely okay. No, he said, everything is absolutely all right. So, but suppose someone told you everything is absolutely all right. Said, what do you mean all right? Look what's going on in the world. It's not all right. It's terrible. It's not what we'd want. It isn't what we'd want. But it's what happens when people behave the way they do, when people are not are motivated by forces beyond those that they can see through as not good. So the end of the story about why I buy the newspapers is, first of all, to remind myself that, that in fact, we don't 
I, I think all of us, but it's better if I say I than we, because how do I know? That I tend to see things through the gloss of what I already have as a belief system. And I think we all do. And uh, I read the paper yesterday. I thought that the Ebola virus is reaching epidemic proportions in certain countries in Africa where they're closing off the borders. And if you live in that country or right near there, that's probably what's in your headline news, not what's going on in the Middle East. And going on in the Middle East and in Afghanistan, things are happening that are not good. And other things are happening in other places. And uh, David Brooks, uh, who's the most um, conservative of the New York Times journalists and uh, whose writing and thinking I admire very much, has a column yesterday called uh, No War is an Island, and uh, reminding you, I'm sure, of the line, no man is an island, nobody, nobody lives by themselves. The third of the three uh, characteristics of life that the Buddha taught is that it's temporal, uh, that... Uh, how do you, what's the one word for karmically determined? That it's... Um, there's a good word that's in one, that's in one word. Uh, it's a word with a C. Wait, wait, wait. It's not coincidental, but uh, everything happens because of everything else. <coughs> That's it. It's like causality. That uh, it's temporal. It's not personal. So that uh, to struggle with things that I can't, that I'm not in charge of, which is most everything. Geschrieben. Geschrieben. Geschrieben for people not in that particular tribe means it's written. <laughs> it had to happen. Actually, geschrieben means it's, it's foretold it, that it would be this way. Uh, it's just, um, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, it's lawful is what Joseph used to say. It's, uh, it's a lawful cosmos, he used to say. Because, because he speaks in a certain um, uh, twangy East Coast twang. I thought what he was saying was that it was an awful cosmos. It's an awful cosmos. It was actually, it's a lawful cosmos. And, but I misheard it and actually liked it the other way. I thought he, that he actually saw it as I did, that it was really, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, I, I was in a very much of a mood that it's a mistake, this world, because we all die. And very much um, uh, of a... a uh, that, that that temporality was a tra it was really a tremendous shadow in my mind. Why do we do this whole thing? If if um, I really am taken with the uh, all our fools are creeps in its petty pace and all our yesterdays. How does that go? Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in its petty pace from day to day. To the last syllable of recorded time. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And so, yeah, there it is. Uh, 
life is but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You know when I used to think about that the first time I went on a meditation retreat? And uh, I would look at people walking, doing walking meditation. So first of all, you have plenty of time to think all kinds of outrageous, outrageous thoughts about everybody. But people walking back and forth, going apparently nowhere, <laughs> strutting and fretting, uh, uh, and, uh, and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, especially if you, you see the moon waxing and waning. And that particular verse came into my mind. And, I, and you know, maybe it's true. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not true. It seems pretty true to me. I don't know that it signifies. It's just here and it's just happening. I, actually, this is a good place to come to an end. But no, I want to tell you about what David Brooks said. David Brooks said, it's just helpful about this no war is an island. You can go home and Google David Brooks, no war is an island. Because at the end... He's talking about uh, all the difficulties uh, around that particular part of the Middle East and actually into the greater part of that part of the world and the whole world. He said, in the end, it no longer makes sense to look at the Israeli-Palestinian contest as an independent struggle. It, like every context of conflict in the region, has to be seen as a piece of the larger 30 years' war. It would be nice if Israel could withdraw from Gaza and the West Bank and the wall itself off from this, and wall itself off from the, this war, but that's not possible. No outsider can run or understand this complex historical process. But Israel, like the United States, will be called upon to at least weaken some of the more radical players, like the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria and Hamas. In 1979, the Arab-Israeli dispute looked like a clash between civilizations. between the Western democracy and the Middle Eastern autocracy. Now the Arab-Israeli dispute looks like a piece of a clash within Arab civilization over its future. But to put it in, in the context of the conflicts that are going on around us, that in fact these are shots fired over the bow between larger players, you know, there's a way that sometimes, uh, and I'm probably, I've been part of it as well, uh, it's easy to move from the particular to the completely philosophical and to say, well, no one's the fault of this. And to say the fault of this is greed and hatred and delusion, which, still ex which yet exist in the minds of human beings, which cause this whole world to run the way it does. But this morning I'm thinking that's a little bit of a too, too big of a jump from the particular to greed, hatred, and delusion, because that takes it out of the hands of the human beings on this world that could do something about it. If we say, well, there isn't any one villain and one victim, but the whole world is complicit, you know, that all the people on the world, with all the, with all the people on the world and all the people power and all the wit and all the knowledge, not so much wisdom, but knowledge, the diseases that we could cure, the 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 clean the cleaning the air the purifying the waters the salvaging and and um, the making of life on earth sustainable 
that a world that really actually got together as peacefully could do together. So it's not even the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. They continue to arise. It's not the arising that's the problem. It's the responding to it that's the problem. They arise just because we have neurology and we're human beings. But we don't have to do that. We could do it another way. I keep hoping that um, earlier on in this um, article, it talks about the Arab Spring and how hopeful we briefly all were that things were going to change. And they changed, but not on and on for the better. And at the time, I remember saying, I felt hopeful myself because half the world is young and they really want to have a world. And they all have cell phones. And they could all say to each other, let's just stop. That's enough. You know, we had millennia and millennia, life piled on life of people who couldn't stop. And there was, so to speak, room not to stop. We could not stop, devastate, and recuperate. But now the planet itself cannot recuperate anymore. So everybody has to stop. And at some point, somebody said recently the Dalai Lama should go on tour with uh, Pope Francis, because they're both extremely popular, and they should go around the world. But that still leaves out the whole Muslim world where they're not that popular. So they'd have to find some proponent, some Muslim, who could be also for peace on the world. And then maybe they could go on tour, the three, or they could send emails to everybody <laughs> and say, look, let's all just stop. And of course it's simplistic. And of course the powers that run the whole capitalistic enterprise or however it is, imperialistic urge, you know, and I really I'm not enough of a social scientist to know, is beyond them too. But something, I mean, there's, there's no alternative to something happening other than things going on terribly. And it was really important for me to see that in the middle of what's personally important to me, like people I care about are dying, the world disappears. You spend a day with those people, and the world situation did not come up. Nobody talked about the world situation. We talked about how to cook a tongue and whether you should skin it before or after. Well, I hope that's not horrible to anybody. <laughs> I see it's horrible to Ruth. <laughs> but it was, it was the food of their childhood, and it's peasant food. It's what peasants eat when you know food is scarce. And, I thought that's, you know, um, I hope people talk to me about how did you cook that particular lasagna that I liked so much at the end. Maybe it'll be the best piece of knowledge that I'll have. It wouldn't be wisdom, but it would be good knowledge to pass on. And somebody could tell about me, she'd try to keep a good attitude. I was going to show you these two... Um, I got a birthday card from a friend of mine with, you probably have seen this uh, earth-friendly recycled. Have you seen this particular, um, usually they show women of a certain age, uh, these cards, and talking to each other. Um, and they're all smiling. They look like all of my great aunts, uh, all my aunts. A positive attitude, a, this is an aphorism, from a positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. <laughs> oh. 
So I think I think that's like my life is a bad neighborhood. I wouldn't want to go there. I think I love the person who sent me the uh, sent that to me. But I think a positive attitude counts, and um, an accomplished person, the Buddha said, does not by philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for he's not of that sort. Not by holy works nor by tradition is he led. Not She is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. That is by the Buddha. How do I know? To know the truth only cease to cherish opinions. I think about that line... It's from the third Zen patriarch. I think about the line at the end of the Metta Sutta that says the pure-hearted one, by not clinging to fixed views, is not born again into this world. And to have a a mind that's not clinging to views, principally the view that things should be different than what they are. Had I had time, I would have brought um, um, something from Ecclesiastes about a time to reap and a time to sow, a time to be born and a time to die. And it turns out to be that everybody in every tradition knows those kinds of things. There's a time to do all that thing, and it's not wrong. It's lawful, like Joseph said. I, I still, I still have that 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 semantic difference with him. When I said to him thirty-five years ago, it's all so sad, and he said, "I, I said it, it's so sad," and he said, "No, it's not sad. It's true." And I, you know, I I admired and loved him as I do now, and I've thought about it for thirty-five years, and I think it is true, and it's poignant. It's not just true. It's also poignant. And that makes a difference. I think the poignancy makes us lower our voice and be kinder and exchange recipes and save photos and bring them to show and tell stories about remember the time this and remember the time that. I think when, when, I, I, I think when it's all over, when all of us are all gone, there's only going to be stories about us. And I think about it if I want people to tell good stories. Uh, the stories, I think, will get better than we actually are. <laughs> I'm back for a while. I think for, I think for most of August or something. I'm glad. I, I, I really mean that. It's very good for me to be here. I feel better. Get a chance to say what I... In case I forget, lest I forget. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a very good thing. I say to people frequently, it's very good for me to listen to Dharma. That's not so important to me who says it, you know. I like it fine when I say it. I can find what other people say. It. I, you know, I write to Dharma Seed, tell them, send me this, send me that. We could just listen to Dharma. It's consoling. May we, as we go about in our lives, be a consolation. 
It's another way of saying, let's be friends. I'm glad you're back. Do you not work on Wednesdays? No, I don't. I remember. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.